Judges. Or, as Bruce Waltke would say, the gift of warlords. Judges, as we walk through this book and are start to meet, we're about to meet the first judges of Israel when there was no king and there was no rightful successor to Joshua to help Israel keep covenant, to help Israel be led well in the land of Canaan. We start to meet these judges, but these are not, these are not Judge Judy. This is not Judge Joe Brown. These are not even the distinguished neighbor of mine who's a remarkable man and father to one in here, Judge Ralph Hill. These are not courtroom judges with black robes and bow ties and amazing southern accents. If you know Judge Hill, you know he's got all those. These are judges who are justice restorers. These are judges who are heroes. They're military dudes and a dudette. These are people that God has brought about to bring salvation from Israel's enemies. And this passage of Judges chapter 3 and verse 7 begins with a refrain that we're going to hear over and over again. But before it gives us this refrain that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, it's a great segue. You never hear this at an Oscar speech. Best picture. This picture did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But that's how all of the judges are introduced. Or a lot of them. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, like a broken record, trying to draw our attention to something that's happening. But before that, we're told that one of the things that God has done is he has judged his people for their evilness by leaving the riffraff of the other nations in Canaan. But this judgment is not him abandoning them to themselves. It's not the judgment of annihilation. It's restorative. He wants to teach them how to fight. He's giving them sparring partners because this generation coming into the promised land has never been in battle. And so he's leaving the remnants of other nations so that they can have sparring partners to learn the skill of warfare. Yeah, maybe that's weird. Also, he's testing them. It's important to remember that. So he's testing them to see if they're going to obey him or not. If they're really his, it's, it's part of their training to wean themselves off of themselves, to wean themselves off of their preference for the ways and the enticements of Canaan. So we start with verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Asherahs. We're going to hear this a lot. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What is doing evil in the eyes of the Lord? He obviously doesn't think evil is cute, laughable, placeable on a Saturday Night Live skit. It's a severe offense. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. You know, Baal was the Canaanite storm god. Asherah was the fertility goddess. You might think, why on earth would I want to worship a storm god? 
Well, you're not agricultural. How are you going to grow your kale? How are you going to grow your fermented grain so that you can make elegant kombucha? You need it to rain. You need the sun. You need the favor. What do you need? Did someone just shout out something else we needed? Oh, someone said finally again. And it's not over yet. It's just starting and it will never end if you say finally. But you know what the Israelites were tempted to do? It's what people in every age have been tempted to do. It's what baseball players do and it's what moms do. They were tempted to worship things they could see and control. That all idolatry, this, this forsaking the living God, who is completely unpredictable, as we're about to see in this, this comic story of deliverance in Ehud, with the comically obese Eglon. No jokes, please. We're going to see that idolatry, as it's constantly referred to, is this sense that what I can do is I can manipulate this thing, and in response, I can get what I want from it. It's reducing God to an Amazon click. If I can just, if I can just click the right button, Amazon Prime will make sure that the goods are delivered to me. If I can just raise my kid in the right way, then I am guaranteed that they will be drug-free and they will not need braces. You've seen this happen. It's another version of it is superstition. But we do it all the time. If you've ever been on a team, say you hit a home run, your team wins, you realize what accounts for the home run. Practice had nothing to do with it. A fat fastball had nothing to do with it. An aluminum bat with a lot of pop had nothing to do with it. What had something to do with it was you were wearing the same socks that you've been wearing for three days that have a blood stain from where you got spiked earlier. Oh, yeah, and you forgot to shower that day and the day before, so now you're stuck. You can never wash your socks again, and you can never take another shower. And the next time you don't hit a home run and your team loses, your team's mad at you. What did you do? Why are you so coiffed and clean? You must have showered. The baseball gods have left us. But you do it in all kinds of ways. If I put in the right inputs, then I'll get the right outputs. You can even do it with God. If I, a God of your imagination. If I can just pray right, if I can just live right, if I can make sure I don't get mad at anybody on the way to work, then I might get the new account. It's all a way, as Eugene Peterson would say, of, of taking things and things that promise to be God to us, but draining all the divinity from them. And God hates it. Because it always leads to degradation. It always leads to you being degraded, you becoming less, people being destroyed, people being run down to the ground. There is one God, the sovereign Lord, who gives orders to the morning, who has rescued his people Israel, that they might be a light to the nations. He has given his laws to them, and he says, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. Joshua has even told the Israelites, choose this day. Who are you going to serve? The living God? Are you going to serve gods that can carry you? Are gods that you can carry? Are you going to pick a God whose arm is strong, who can rescue you from oppression and lead you through the desert and feed you from the skies? Are you going to worship a God that you can carry around in your wallet? 
that you can check on with your bank statement, that you can see with your eyes, that you can move from place to place. They served the Baals and the Asherahs, which means they forgot the Lord, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishathaim. Pregnant ladies, it's not too late. <laughs> Rishathaim. Double wickedness, I think. The king of Aram, Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. So they forgot God. They served other gods, and therefore they became oppressed, degraded, and slaves to another evil, villainous king, and God had set it up. He didn't destroy them, but he's introducing them to themselves. He's putting them in a position to learn, you don't want to be ruled by any other master. There is no master but me, that you're going to find joy, hope, satisfaction, purpose, your rightful place in serving, but me. I want you to learn that. And then they cried out to the Lord, and he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Karaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. We're going to hear this pattern. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forsake the Lord. They forsook the Lord. They have forsaken the Lord? They served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against them. He raised up a villainous king from a rival school. He oppressed them. The Crimson Tide was ruled by the Auburn Tigers for 18 years. See, that's a joke because that would not happen. I don't care about either of those teams. And neither does the Lord. <laughs> but he obviously doesn't care about Tennessee either. Okay. They're under judgment. The Spirit of the Lord came. And then, so, so they, the people, they're in a state of distress. They're in a state of dismay. They're disoriented. They don't like it. Like the Israelites under the thumb of the Egyptians and the cruel Pharaoh and the harsh taskmasters. They cry out to God. He is moved by pity and he raises up a Savior for them. This first judge is Othniel from the tribe of Judah, the preferenced tribe. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge. Again, no black robe. This is a warrior term. He led them in battle, endowed with the power of the Lord through his Spirit. And he went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Ristaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel and overpowered him in the land and enjoyed peace for 40 years. This is the theme. We're going to see it over and over again. Do evil. Forsake the Lord. Worship other gods. God gets mad. He punishes his people. Lets them be subjugated to another ruthless oppressor. They don't like being ruthlessly oppressed. They get sick of it. They cry out to God. God can't give them up. That's what we're calling this series Unabandoned. Because they do everything in their power to destroy themselves. And he does everything in his power to see to it that they won't because his affection's too strong and he can't give them up. So he rescues them. He raises up a leader. That leader is called a judge. He endows them with his spirit or her. And then the, while that judge is alive, they have peace. The land enjoys flourishing. Enemies are vanquished. And then we meet Ehud. The left-handed assassin. Once again, the Israelites 
you might have heard this before, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did this evil. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave them over to the villainous king Eglon, the king of Moab. And he gave them power over Israel. And he consolidated his power. He got the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. And they sacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which was Jericho. And if you remember when the Israelites went into Canaan, you remember the... And the walls came down. We sang it last week. Joshua won the battle of Jericho. And now that city that has been sacked by God's surprising magnificence, fighting for his people, has been taken back over. And the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. 18 years from the time you're born until the end of high school. That's a long time to be subject to somebody who's demanding taxes and tribute. And this story, though, what's amazing about it is this story would make a great sitcom, except that it's rated R. I've told you before, the book of Judges is like Quentin Tarantino meets the ancient Near East. And you're going to find that in just a moment. But when I think of this, when I think of this this description of of Eglon, uh, one commentator has said you could, the name sounds a lot like little round bull. We're going to find out that he's really fat. And I think a boss hog. If you spent any time in Hazard County as a kid, in other words, if you had a privileged upbringing, and you got to watch Bo and Luke Duke and their painted on jeans and their cowboy boots sliding across the hood of their orange Dodge Charger called the General Lee, so named for the great Confederate General Robert E. Lee in the War of Northern Aggression, with doors that were welded shut because why else, how else would you do a door? So they could slide in because you've got no time for opening and closing. But Boss Hawk, dressed in white but black-hearted, he had a gluttony problem. No comments. He had a greed problem. He was always out to rule the Hazard County folks with wickedness and nefariousness. But he was always being outwitted by them, gosh darn, Duke boys. That's something like what God's let happening here, what's being told in this story. It's meant to be funny. When you're subjugated, when you're under the thumb of a ruthless oppressor, sometimes the only thing you can do is make fun of them. It's a way to get relief. It's a way to, it's a way to be able to survive under it. You mock and you make fun, and that's what's happening here. So after this Eglon, little round bull, has them for 18 years, the Israelites don't like it. They cry out to the Lord, and he gives them a deliverer. Liam Neeson, (laughs) who has a certain set of skills. Ehud, a left-handed man. A southpaw out of Jersey. The son of Gera, the Benjamite. Now this already starts off weird because he's left-handed. Why do they say that? He's got a mean fastball? He's left-handed because left-handedness, of course, is sinister. 
Sorry, lefties. My own son's left-handed. But in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, it was a right-handed world. Left-handed people were weird. They're like redheads now. I just saw a video clip that my son showed me of a little boy who made a video in retort to South Park who said that redheads have no soul. And his refrain in the song was, God made me like this, I'm a ginger, and I do have a soul. And then last night, the teenage boys in the car were telling me that it's been scientifically proven that gingers are faster than other people. What all the talk about redheads? I don't know. But left-handedness is kind of like that. It was just kind of strange. It was kind of bizarre. It's weird. And to impress upon you the comic irony of it, he was a son of Gera, the Benjamite. Benjamin means son of the right hand. He's a left-handed man who's the son of a son of the right hand. He's all messed up. This is important. It's going to factor in. He smuggles in a gift from God. The Israelites send this left-handed man, Ehud, with a tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Presumably, grains, agricultural gifts. It's a tribute. It's their tax bill to this ruling king. Now, Ehud had made... A double-edged sword for 400 arcs. About a foot and a half long from his elbow to his knuckles, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Important again. Because the TSA agents at the front gate of Eglon's palace had been instructed to make sure you check the left leg For 18-inch double-edged shorts. There's no sense in dealing with the right leg because only an idiot would carry a sword on his right leg because only an idiot would be left-handed. Lots of air quotes. So he's able to smuggle in a weapon. The devil's right hand. Now, that's what Steve Earle said. That's what Mama called the pistol is the devil's right hand. It can get you into trouble, but it can't get you out. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very, here we go, fat man. (laughs) If you're watching it on TV, he's walking into Jabba the Hutt. (laughs) After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. He sent the, the guys out. They've made their tribute. They give all these grains, which obviously Eglon has been eating too many of, converting to refined sugars. And they go on their way. They get to the idols near Gilgal where these idols are set up. And Ehud comes back. And he says to the king, I have a special message from you, for you, from God. Of course... Eglon hears this as from God, like not Yahweh, not the God. He means from the gods, from Baal. He thinks, I've got a message from God. This is going to be awesome. So he says, get out of here, everybody. Get out of here. 
And so all of a sudden, you've got a left-handed assassin with a sword on his right hand and a really fat king in a quiet room. And now some commentators would say this translation for left-handed means not able to use his right hand. Which might mean he can't go right. He can't shoot well. He doesn't have a good dribble on the right hand. Or it might mean that he had some kind of deformity. That his right hand didn't work too good. Some commentators have said the reason that, that Eglon would let him in to talk to him privately is he had posed no threat. He's got a gimp arm. I don't know if that's right. Some people, multiple people have said that. But maybe he's got a gimp arm. He's got a gimp arm. He's no threat. Even though with our third person omniscient viewpoint, we know he's got a sword on his right leg. No one's going to see this coming. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room at his summer palace. Oh, Boss Hogg's office. It's summer, it's sweltering, they're on Durham Road, they're saying, when's this thing going to end? And the Israelites are, and here's Boss Hogg up in his air-conditioned veranda with his private quarters and a cool and gentle breeze. I have a message from God for you, and like you do at worship, this man, this king stood up. He needed him to stand up. He was too rotund, he only had an 18-inch sword. He was not going to get anywhere with Jabba if the guy didn't stand up and sort of straighten himself out a bit. He stands up. The king rises from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand. And this is called scenic depiction. The the, the scene slows down way slow. He's not covering lots of ground with each word. He's covering it really slowly. He reached with his left hand. Who would do that? goes to his right thigh, he picks out the sword, and he plunges it. Like, (laughs) who made that noise? (laughs) Dang. Professor, el maestro. Sandy Shaw. He plunged it into the king's belly, and even the handle sank in after the blade. He lost his weapon. In the king. Where's the weapon? There's always a problem. What do you do with it? How do you, what do you, how do you get rid of the weapon? Leave it in him. <laughs> Hide it in him. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Quentin Tarantino, I told you. Then Ehud went out to the porch, shut the doors of the open room behind him, and locked them. Now, commentators will also tell us that NIV is being fairly polite here, that it's, it's likely to be the case that what should be translated is when he plunged the sword in, some dirt came out. I'm not going to say more than that, but it didn't smell good. Yeah, oh, oh. And that is why when his attendants came up to this locked room, they're like, he must be using the restroom. Or it's using him. (laughs) He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. See, this is supposed to be funny. You're laughing because it's appropriate. The Israelites were supposed to hear this and say, look what God did. Look what he did. 
He made, he made a mockery of this king who's trying to mock us. He's sitting there in his own excrement with a sword trapped in the walls of his fat. The fat that he developed off our backs. They waited to the point of embarrassment. They're like, what's he reading in there? And when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them, and there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, so he's been able to hide the weapon. The smell is such that they think something else is going on, not death, and so he's been able to get away without anybody noticing him. He passed by the idols. When he arrived there, he blows the shofar. He has got men, fighting men, hiding in the hills. He says, the Lord has given the Moabites into our hands. I've destroyed the king. Now he's given us the Moabites. And they meet him at the fords of the Jordan. And it says, they, at that time, they struck down 10,000 Moabites. Again, a translation issue. This says, all vigorous and strong. It might mean all stout and full-bodied. Like their king and Israelites routed them because the Lord had given them into their hands. That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. So now you've heard the story. You've gotten little commentaries along the way. In these last few minutes, what do you do with that story? Just laugh and go, my gosh, that's weird and awesome. Well, here's something to consider. One. The problem that the Israelites had that necessitated this episode is a problem that afflicts us all, all the time, is they forgot to remember. They forgot to remember. They didn't make a plan to remember. If you plan to fail, you fail to, you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I'd be an awesome football coach. <laughs> Clean boots, full ears, full hearts, can't lose. If you are a person, the easiest thing in the world for you to do is going to be to forget God, the one who made you. You've got a degenerative spiritual disease that makes amnesia towards what God has done in your life very difficult. The Bible is replete with admonitions. Do not forget the Lord. Do not forget the Lord. When you go into Canaan, they said, when you go into Canaan, and there's whole foods on every corner and you're drinking pumpkin spice lattes and you're in the jacuzzi and you're driving in your auto driving I mean your self-driving cars what's going to happen is you're going to think I'm pretty hot stuff you're going to forget that God gave you all of this stuff you're going to forget the God who rescued you and surplused you and you're going to get arrogant and then you're going to start worshiping this stuff They forgot to remember this is going to happen over and over and over again, and that always leads to doing evil. Tim Keller says that our hearts are like a bucket of water on a cold day, and we've got to be constantly breaking up the ice in our hearts because the things of God are going to increasingly seem less real to us while everything around us seems more and more real. That's why we come together 
in small groups. That's why we come together and worship. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. That's why I hope you're doing this prayer exercise. Why I hope you're praying for the kids. Why I hope you're doing this scripture reading. Why I hope you're giving some space in your life not to be dedicated to constant partial attention. You know what that is? Constant partial attention is when you're at the soccer game and you're reading a book and you're watching your kids and you're texting someone and you're posting something on Facebook with your toes because you ran out of hands. So you're kind of paying attention to everything at once and to nothing at all. Don't forget, don't forget to remember the Lord who is your life. And one of the ways you remember that you stop forgetting to remember is you cry out. One of the, one of the refrains throughout this book of Judges is every time people fall into some kind of discipline from the Lord, some kind of judgment and subjugation from another people, the people start to cry out to the Lord, and that is the beginning of the spirits coming, of their enemies being subdued, of them being rescued. Crying out shouldn't be a once and a trauma thing to do. It's an everyday thing to do. This is what Christians do. They cry out. And we're not even told when they cry out if it's actual repentance, that they're like, God, we're so sorry. We can't believe how we've snubbed you, how we've spat in your face, how we've extended the double middle finger to you. We can't believe it. Oh, please, please forgive us. It's just as they cried out. And God's like a parent who you broke curfew and the parent is worried sick and you come home and the parent, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to smother you with love. Oh my gosh, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And then they're going to ground you for two months. But the first thing that's going to overtake them is their pity, is their relief because they like you so much, because they want you so much. And God is magnetically drawn to crying out. So, most of the stuff that you hate about your life right now is probably a divinely situated matter. The thing that you can't get to go away, you wish it would. I heard heard someone talk about eating too many Santos with shredded cheese on them at night. They kept doing it, and they were so frustrated. They wanted to stop, but they couldn't. And I was like, what's wrong with you? To myself. (laughs) I don't know about you. I have 50 million things in my life where I'm like, what's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with me is I'm somebody who stands in constant need of the pity of God. And I don't want to live by pity at all. I don't want to. But neither do you when you say, I I, I know God forgives me. I can't forgive myself. (laughs) No, no. You're saying, I can't. I refuse to live by pity. I want... I want to stand in my own heart based on how great I am. I don't want to believe that God and other people love me in spite of me, not because of how fantastic I am. Crying out is not to be a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's not to be a a once-in-a-trauma thing. Crying out is a way to keep remembering God. Every time the Israelites cry out to God, they get an audience from God. When they stop crying out, that's when they're subjugated. But it's the subjugation, it's the oppression that actually leads them to cry out. This is what happens. Suffering is God's best way of weaning you off yourself. You've heard of this phenomenon called Mountain Dew Mouth? Have you heard of this? 
ABC News did a story. In certain places, you know, this putting in the bottles of kids like Mountain Dew or something, their teeth rotten out, sucking on sugar all the time. You got to wean kids off a bottle, especially if it's filled with Mountain Dew, yellow number five, man, because they're already wired. They don't need to sleep. They won't ever sleep. And your kids already don't sleep, and that's why you don't like them sometimes. They'll, they'll sleep. They'll sleep. But the weaning process is sometimes difficult. It makes us cry out. But the apostle has reminded us in his own crying out three times to keep me from becoming conceited because of surpassingly great revelations the Lord sent a thorn in my flesh, a messenger to torment me. Three times I pleaded with God to remove it from me. And we don't know what the it was because I think all of you are going to have its. You're going to have things. And it's a great kindness of the Lord to give us this story about the apostle of the heart set free who couldn't get free of some nagging something in his life. It might have been some health condition. It might have been some kind of anxiety. It might have been some kind of anger problem. It might have been that he, you know, that he couldn't stop watching Netflix. I don't know. It was something that made him sick of himself and made him say, God, you've got to rescue me. You've got to deliver me. I am sore oppressed and I need a liberator. And Jesus says to him, eh, we'll leave it for now. My grace is enough. My power tabernacles in the slums of your weakness. My largesse moves in to your deficits. And so Paul could actually start to say, therefore, I will delight in hardships, persecutions, difficulties, nagging bosses, Screaming kids, not enough paycheck for the month. I'll delight in these things because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because I have been given by God's kindness things that help me to cry out over and over and over again. They forgot to remember. Let us remember to remember. They stopped crying out. And when they cried out, that's when they got help. We have been invited to cry out often. And always, especially in those areas that you hate and won't change, consider them invitations to keep crying out. And remember this. There is no enemy that you have, not one inside you, not one outside of you, that God can't comically dispose of. It's pretty amazing to listen to all the quotable things that G.K. Chesterton said. And one of the things he said is this. If a rhinoceros, to one of his friends in a fancy restaurant... If a rhinoceros should come into this restaurant at this very moment, he would have a great deal of power. There's no doubt about that. But I would be the first to stand up and assure him that he has no authority whatsoever in this restaurant. He has plenty of power, but he has no authority. He can't set public policy in here. He's not going to dictate terms for us. He's not going to be our primary influencer. The scriptures are full of this idea. The nation's... Why do they rage and plot in vain against the Holy One enthroned in heaven who looks down on them like they're a bunch of little ants who are saying, throw off his rule. And they're going, you think of little cartoon ants before the foot of a boy who's about to smash their home 
The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Therefore, kiss, kiss the king lest he be angry, for his anger can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a king who has extended terms of peace to all the little ants who are crying out against him all the time. Don't rule me. I don't want to do what you want. (laughs) He says, come on. And he welcomes you in. And Jesus, we're told, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And with that authority, he has said, I would like to give you life. I would like to conquer the enemy of death. I would like to conquer the enemy of the evil one who has come to destroy you. And I've come that you might have life. I'd like to conquer your own self that's constantly misleading you. But you must cry out to me. You must surrender your your authority to mine. So that you can find the comic and joyful defeat of your God over all your enemies. Remember that. And keep crying out to the one who has all authority and who will use it well on behalf of his people. Amen.